27. So look at all those things that are coming up. But we do have a Bible study this morning. And so if you'll open up to Daniel chapter 2 as we continue. Uh, we started the book of Daniel a few weeks ago. We're going to finish chapter 2 here today. And you recall that as we opened up chapter 2 of Daniel last week, that here is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. He has taken the choice man of Judah away into captivity. That's Daniel and his companions that we saw in chapter 1. Nebuchadnezzar has conquered the known world. And we know that as Nebuchadnezzar, as we read in verse 1, he has these dreams, notice plural, but it's the same dream that he has more than once. Whether he had it, uh, dreamed this dream uh, two or three number of times in one night or over a course of time, we do know this, that he's troubled. His sleep left him. So what he does is he calls for his wise men, the wise men of Babylon, and he says, I want you guys to tell me the dream and the interpretation of the dream. They reply and they say, listen, you tell us the dream, we'll give you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar, he starts to get angry. And he says, no, I want you guys to tell me the dream. Then I know that you can give me the interpretation. And as the wise men respond to Nebuchadnezzar, what we see in this chapter and in chapter 3 is you did not make him angry. And he got angry very easily. They begin to kind of challenge him a little bit. And they said, well, we can't do that. There's, there is no one that is able to do that. There's no man on earth that can tell the king's matter. So Nebuchadnezzar, the king, he gets furious and he makes a decree. And remember this, he's an absolute authority. Whatever he says goes. He makes a decree. Okay, that's it. I'm going to kill all the wise men. And Daniel and his companions that came with them from Judah, as we saw in chapter 1, that they had purpose in their heart not to defile themselves, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they are not in this initial meeting of Nebuchadnezzar. Because Daniel hears the commotion as Arioch, the captain of the guard, is beginning to round up the wise men. Daniel says, what's going on here? And is Arioch that said, the decree has gone out, it's urgent, we're going to kill all the wise men. Matter of fact, let's read verse 13 again. We can see how, uh, how their lives were in danger. The decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So here is Daniel, even though they weren't there initially, that his life is in danger. Same with Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel asked the king, he said, give me some time and I'll give you the dream, the interpretation of the dream. So in verses 18 through 23, we saw that the Lord gave him, Daniel, the dream, the interpretation of the dream. And now we're going to see that Daniel is going to tell the king the dream and the interpretation. So chapter 2 has been called the backbone to Bible prophecy. And what we're going to see is that he's going to speak of the Gentile kingdoms that will come on the scene from the time of Daniel. Keep in mind, Daniel's writing this in the 6th century B.C. From the time of Daniel to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so this has implication of where things are going in the latter days. Matter of fact, let's pick it up at verse 25 as we do read. The Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man in the captives of Judah who will make known the king the interpretation. And the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, 
Are you able to make known to me the dream and I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. Verse 28, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar, listen, what will be in the latter days. Father, we ask that as we continue going through this chapter, that we would be attentive so we can know what it's going to be in the latter days, which I believe that we are in. And Lord, we know that your word is certain. The interpretation is sure. And we can, Lord, build our faith on that. That as you tell us the end from the beginning, and you know it all, that we can be sure that it will come to pass. So I pray that we right now would just get that foundational understanding of Daniel that will lead us to understand the rest of the prophecies that are in the book of Daniel. And also, as we see that he speaks of the climax of human history, that we would know that it's all leading to somewhere, someplace. Lord, this morning we take this time to pray for the people of Ukraine. Lord, as they are facing bombardment, attack, invasion. Lord, as the crisis is deepening. Lord, it's hard to know how to pray, but we do pray that you would work. And Lord, we just pray for the team that is there on the ground, as well as many other Christians on the border, the Christians in Ukraine that are there, to help them to be strong in the day in which they are in. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with Pastor Nick Cady, uh, that he's there in Hungary as they're setting up relief. And Lord, that um, we know that there's no pandemic, there's no war, there's nothing that will keep the gospel from continuing to spread. So that's what our prayer is, is that the message of hope would go forth. But also, Lord, just help of those who need it. So we lift the whole situation up to you and how we can help, whether as we pray, as we give, if you lead us to. That Lord, we know that we are here for such a time as this. And Lord, that you desire to use us in however way you, you put on our hearts and opportunities. And Lord, I pray that this morning our hearts would be stirred once again, knowing that all this is leading to the return of the Lord and the establishment of his kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We know that Daniel, as he says, that listen, there's no wise man, there's no magician, there's no Chaldean astrologer that can tell you the dream. The thing to remember for you and for me is there's going to be a lot of analysis of what possibly could happen, and we hear it, and we want to be informed. But we can read God's word, and we know that what God's word tells us, that it is all leading to something that uh, we are going to be exploring over the next several weeks. And we know that God has a plan and that he is sovereign. And this book dares to give us prophecy as Daniel says, listen, king, there's a God in heaven that reveals these things. We know that the apostle Peter, he walked and talked and ministered with Jesus for three years. And Peter would be with Jesus on some very incredible moments of his ministry. 
Peter was in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and would see special miracles. He saw Jairus' daughter, you recall, as we just went through Matthew, being raised from the dead. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus is transfigured before them, talking with Moses and Elijah. And after the resurrection of Jesus, which Peter, we know, was an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord, 30 years later, in his second epistle, writing prior to him being martyred, Peter reflects on the life and ministry of Jesus. And he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Peter knew that the accounts of Jesus' miracles would be told and would be written down and that some people would find it too good to be true, too incredible to accept. And there would be those who would attempt to explain it away as just a myth or some cunningly devised fable. So Peter goes on to write that if you don't want to take my word for it, an eyewitness of these things, then we also have a more sure word of prophecy. He writes that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The inspired word of God, the, the, the Bible is one author. Even though he uses human instruments, the inspired word is the Holy Spirit moved them to write these things down. And a third of this book, nearly a third, is dealing with prophecy. And the Lord comes along and says that he knows the end from the beginning, and he's 100% accurate and correct. We can look back and see that many of the prophecies have come to pass, particularly as we look at Jesus' first advent, his coming concerning his birth and life and, and death and burial and resurrection. We can be certain that Jesus, the prophecies of his second coming, which are over 200 of them, that they will come to pass as well. We know that as we look at this vision here, that here is Daniel. He is writing in the 6th century B.C. And everything that Daniel's writing is yet future. Here we are 2,600 years later. We can look back and we can see how much of it has come to pass. But yet, remember that Daniel said in verse 28, concerning the latter days. So we're going to see where things are headed. We're going to see that this vision, there's still part of it that is going to be fulfilled that speaks of the days in which I believe that we're getting very close to. So here is the, the dream is certain, the interpretation is sure, the prophecy is 100% correct, and that's what Peter writes. Also keep in mind that Ezekiel is in captivity as well. So Daniel's there in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. There's Ezekiel taken off into captivity. The book of Ezekiel, as he's prophesying, he's prophesying about Israel, how they're going to come back into the land. You see, the Bible speaks of them going into captivity, being dispersed throughout the nations, and would come back not once. That's the Babylonian uh, captivity. They come back in 536 B.C. after 70 years. But two of them, and here they are back in the land after 2,000 years of being dispersed after the, the Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans and the temple destroyed, and they were dispersed throughout all the nations. So we see that as Daniel's writing here, that many of, of the things that he spoke of, some of it has come to pass. We'll look at it very carefully. There is a God in heaven. 
that reveals this to you. In your dream and your visions and your head upon your bed were these. As for you, verse 29, O king, thoughts came about your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I am more wisdom than anyone living but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart so daniel i believe one of the reasons that he was used in such an incredible way is because he doesn't take the credit for himself he doesn't go before nebuchadnezzar and and say nebuchadnezzar what i'm going to do is i'm going to give you the dream the interpretation so let's start negotiating I want this, I want that, I want, you know, these things. He says, it isn't me. There's no wise man of Babylon that will be able to tell you what is ahead. You know, we have the wise men of Babylon, of the world, that are making analysis and all of this, and we want to be informed. But if we say that the Lord's going to come back and establish his kingdom, we're considered kooks, aren't we? Because we know what the Bible has to say. So here, Daniel says, I'm going to tell you, it's not me. It's not that I'm wiser than anybody else. Showing humility, we will give the interpretation to you as well. And he begins to tell of the dream. So here is Daniel telling him the dream. Verse 31, let's look at that. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. As we read this, here is this image. It's going to be an image of a man, because Daniel's going to describe head and arms and chest and belly and legs and feet with toes. And as he does that, they're going to be made of different metals. And as he continues telling them, this, this, this image that you saw was splendor. It, it was amazing. It stood before you. Its form was awesome. Verse 32, the image head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as he gives the description of this image, he says that there's on this image this head of gold. But then there's the chest and arms of silver and a belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron. And he goes on to say that the feet and toes were made of iron mingled with clay. Uh, as we read that uh, in verse 34, as the vision continues, that Nebuchadnezzar, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on his feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the iron and clay and the bronze and silver and the gold were crushed together. It became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone was struck the image and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. So what happened? All of a sudden this image, which is awesome and splendor, that this stone made without human hands struck the image in the feet, and the image was broken into pieces, was blown away like the chaff, and the stone became a mighty mountain, and it filled the whole earth. Now, we know that this dream is accurate, don't we? Because Nebuchadnezzar doesn't challenge Daniel. 
I think Nebuchadnezzar, I can't picture him, that he's standing there and his eyes are as big as saucers as Daniel's describing this dream. He doesn't say, well, that's not the dream I had. Or you're way off, Daniel. You're going to get killed. You're going to be chopped up into little pieces and your house made a dunghill. That's what Nebuchadnezzar would do. But he's listening intently. And Daniel, with confidence, he says, this is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation. Now, who's we? Well, he's already given glory to God. He said, God has revealed the secret. So I think that perhaps in the last verse of the chapter, it kind of gives a hint that is his companions, that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are with him that we are going to give the interpretation. Again, Daniel is not trying to take all the glory to himself, trying to exalt himself, trying to elevate himself. And listen, as we have opportunity to tell people the word of God, as we have opportunity to, to give some certainty to people in an uncertain world, we don't want to take the glory for ourselves. We don't want to say, oh, I'm so smart, I'm so wonderful, I'm an amazing Bible student. We want to, in humility, give glory to him, be used of him, and simply give people the gospel, give them the word of God, because people are wondering, aren't they? Especially today. And what we've gone through, and so much is happening. It's like the world is at a boiling point. And you and I know that the Bible speaks of the days in which are ahead. So here he tells of this, this, this vision, of this image, and then... He tells of the interpretation, verse 37. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. That's the Babylonian empire. Now, the Babylonian empire was the absolute monarchy, and he has absolute power, and it only lasted about 90 years, from about 626 B.C. to 536 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. But I want us to notice something, and this is important for us to understand. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, and, and here he says that there is a God in heaven that has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. He's allowed you to be the king, and it's been given to you that... Uh, the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hands and has made you ruler over them all. Remember the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. It's, you know, before the captivity. And, and Habakkuk is just wrestling. He, he's there, he's wondering, he's, he's wrestling. He says, Lord, I see here in our own nation, is he speaking about the house of Judah? There's violence, there's injustice, there's all these things going on. And the Lord responds to Habakkuk and says, I am doing a work in this day. I'm working a work in this day. And he goes on to say that I'm going to use the Chaldeans who are dreadful and they're a terrible nation, but I'm going to use them to take Judah off into captivity because they've gone off into idol worship, because of their sins, because they refuse to turn back to me. God is the one that sets those in authority, Romans chapter 13. We don't fully understand it. But in his sovereignty, he does that. God's not all up there going, oh, no, did you see who won the election or who's the you know, king here and all of this? He knows all that. And it is all for the purposes of his kingdom that's going to be established. So he tells Nebuchadnezzar, God has given you your kingdom, 
But you're going to go down, Nebuchadnezzar. You're not going to last forever because your kingdom is going to be replaced by another as we continue re reading. But after you, verse 39, shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And then the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others." So your kingdom, the head of gold, is going to be replaced by the chest and arms of silver. And that would be the Medo-Persian Empire. Lasted for about 240 years, from 536 B.C. to 300 B.C. We're going to see in chapter 5 how they overtook the Babylonian Empire. Now, it says here that they're inferior to you. What that means is, is that it was not an absolute monarchy, but a constitutional monarchy. And we're going to see that when we get into chapter 5 of Daniel. And then that empire is going to be replaced by a third empire, the belly and thighs of bronze. And that would be the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great. He comes on the scene, and at the age of 33, he conquers the known world. And you might remember from your high school history class that the great quote of Alexander is, are there no more worlds for me to conquer? And he wept. He conquered the known world. And we know that as, you know, Alexander at the age of 33, he gets intoxicated. He walks back to his tent in a soaking rain. He falls asleep in his tent in his clothes. He ends up getting pneumonia and he ends up dying at the age of 33 after conquering the whole world. Nice life. I mean, it reminds me of what Jesus said. What good is it if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? That empire, the Grecian Empire, is going to be replaced by the legs of iron. That would be the Roman Empire. And they came to power in about 63 B.C., right before Jesus is born, and, and was ruling during the time of Jesus. It was so strong that it actually stood for 500 years. So again, as we look at it from where we're at, uh, 2,600 years ago, it was all prophecy. We look back and we see that these four empires have come and gone. That it has come to pass, as Daniel said. And, and that's why there's the higher critics that come along and they try to put doubt on the book of Daniel. That Daniel didn't write this in the 6th century B.C. Uh, the higher critics, uh, the liberal scholars, uh, the doubters of the scripture, they say another Daniel wrote this in the 1st in the century A.D., uh, after Jesus. And we know, as Jesus even spoke, that Daniel was a prophet and quotes from Daniel chapter 9, we know and we can be confident that Daniel wrote these things down in the 6th century. There's no evidence whatsoever that it was another Daniel that came along and, and wrote these prophecies. And the reason that they doubt is because when we get to chapter 7 through 12, we're going to see that he's going to give prophecy that is so accurate and so detailed, they think there's no way that Daniel couldn't written up. Well, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things down. Because God knows the end from the beginning. Amen? So don't let anybody snow you saying that Daniel didn't write this. It was another Daniel. We can be confident that Daniel wrote this in the 6th century B.C. Because Jesus said he did. And as we look at this, the, the vision isn't done. He, he, he speaks of then in verse 41 that, um, that after this fourth kingdom is going to crush all the others, the Roman Empire... Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, 
the kingdom shall be divided, I find that interesting. It kind of caught my attention this week. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. That's interesting. But they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with the clay. So here he talks about there's going to be the feet that has the toes. We assume there's 10 toes. And we are also going to see that it correlates when Daniel has a vision in chapter 7 of four different beasts. And these four beasts correlate with the four empires that we are talking about here. You say, so what? What's that got to do with me? Romans already passed off the scene. Well, here Daniel begins to tell us of where we're headed in the days ahead concerning, remember verse 28, the latter days. So the feet, it's iron mingled with clay, ten toes. It's going to correlate with the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 that he will tell us more details about that in that fourth beast, it was dreadful, it was horrible, is what Daniel says. He was interested in the fourth beast. And in chapter 7, we're going to read that there was ten horns, Again, there's ten toes here. And we are told that they are kings, just as we're going to read in the next verse, that the toes here are kings. And that there's going to be a little horn that's going to come up among the ten horns. The little horn is a title for Antichrist. That he's going to come out of this restored Roman Empire, revived Roman Empire, this new Roman Empire. It's not like the old one. It's iron mingled with clay. It's a kingdom that's going to be divided. So what we're seeing, we don't know how this is going to end in Ukraine, but there's a lot of talk how Russia wants to divide Europe again, right? Now, as I mentioned to you, when we speak about end-time prophecy, we need to understand that Israel is the epicenter of Bible prophecy, that there's a lot of focus on Israel. We will see that particularly in the outline of Daniel chapter 9 in the 70 weeks of Daniel. Understand this, Daniel, concerning your people and your holy city. 70 weeks are determined. 69 of those weeks or 69 periods of seven years have already come to pass. There's still a seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel, where we see this one that's called the little horn. We're going to see him that he's going to rise up in that time, that final seven-year period, make a covenant with Israel for a week. I, I don't know what that is. Somebody's playing bagpipes or something. So, But anyway... That's going to come on the scene, and the Antichrist is going to come on the scene at that time. So Israel is a focal point. Don't let anybody tell you that Israel is not, you know, playing a role, or God doesn't have a plan for Israel in the last days. What has become more popular, in the, even in evangelical churches today, is what is called replacement theology. And replacement theology is this, that as we... Uh, see that, um, sorry, I just got distracted. But replacement theology says this, that Israel doesn't play a part in the last days and that God is through with Israel. And we know the Bible says otherwise. So we'll talk more specifically about it. So Israel is a focal point, And it's interesting that these kingdoms have come and gone. And then there's a 2,000-year gap since Israel was taken away in 70 A.D., 
out of the land for 2,000 years. They become a nation in 1948. Absolute miracle that that took place. And as, you know, we think about it, here's an interesting little side note that Babylon destroyed Solomon's temple, the first temple, on the ninth of Av. That is the ninth of Av, which is the ninth or 10th of August. Rome comes along and destroys the second temple on the ninth of Av, the same date in, in 70 AD. You know that the last 2,000 years, this division doesn't deal with the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, doesn't mention the United States, any of those things. But all of a sudden, we look back, there's this gap that is there, and we're going to see that it's going to pick it up now, that in the tribulation period, that there's this revived Roman Empire that's going to take place and come on the scene. We know that in verse 44, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clays, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, the interpretation is sure. What does it mean for us today? It means this, that the dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. That in the days of these kings, that is the toes, that the kingdom of God is going to be established. So we know that he is speaking about the latter days and that where we are headed is towards this revived Roman Empire. That's why we're watching Rome and what's are in Europe, what's going on. When Israel became a nation in 1948, in the same year, there was the, uh, the Treaty of Rome. Six nations came together. They came together so that um, they would, it was called the European Economic Union. So they come together and kind of solidify themselves economically. We were watching that. I remember when I was a young Christian that in the late 70s and 80s, we were watching this European Economic Union. It was eight members. It was nine members. Then it went to ten members. And we were saying, that's it. There's the, the revived Roman Empire. Then it went to 12 members. Then it went to 13. Then it went to 27, I believe, is what today. So there apparently, we will see in Daniel's 70th week, prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ, that there's going to be this revived Roman Empire that's going to consist of 10 kings overseen by the Antichrist who comes on the scene, and he's going to try to to globalize the world, and he will, politically, economically, and religiously. Because 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that he goes into the rebuilt temple, he will then proclaim himself as God and tell the world to worship him. And if you do not take the mark of the beast, according to Revelation chapter 13, you will not be able to buy or sell. So he's going to come on the scene, and we'll talk more about it when we get to Daniel chapter 7. So this, this feet of clay and, and iron and the ten toes or kings are going to be on the scene in the latter days. But as I said, for you and for me, is that we belong, we need to remember, to a kingdom that will stand forever. And it's not man's kingdom that will stand. We are to live in an awareness that we are in the latter days, that Christ is coming. And we are told that when we begin to see these things come to pass, 
we're to look up for our redemption draws near. When it comes to the return of the Lord, there's two aspects to, to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Just like in his first coming, there was different aspects. There was the birth of Jesus Christ, the life, the death, the burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. When it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ, there's two different events that are spoken of. The rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he will come for his church. And we who are alive, that is, there's going to be a generation of Christians that are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Don't let anyone tell you that the rapture is not in the Bible, because it is very clearly. And that word caught up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the Greek word harpazo, where we get the Latin word rapturus, where we get our English word rapture. Paul says comfort one another with these words. And then when he talked about the day of the Lord, that starts the tribulation period, that he says that we're not children of the night, we're children of the day. We're not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Comfort one another with these words. And we can be comforted in the day in which we are living. And we don't have to be troubled in heart. We are troubled when we see the things going on around us, but we don't have to have trouble to where we think there's so much uncertainty around us. Because God's word and promises are certain, and they are sure. And Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Isaiah declared, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And we are to ask ourselves, as Peter, in his last words to the church, that what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for in the hastening of the coming of the day of God? as we are being renewed daily by the Spirit of God. We are told, Paul, I think about how he writes to the Corinthians, that we look, that scopio is the Greek word, where we get our word telescope or microscope. We look not at the things seen, but the things not seen. For the things seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Therefore, listen, we don't lose heart. And maybe you're here in this place this morning. I know we've had people come through the two previous services. That you look around in all the uncertainty. We've gone through a pandemic. We look at what's going on in our own nation. We see what's going on in the world. We begin to wonder, what is the future for our kids? I, I wonder, what is it for my grandchild that's been born? That we have certainty in these uncertain times. And I don't have to lose heart. And maybe you're here. It has not the world events that are going on that trouble you, but your own personal challenges and difficulties and loss and pain that you're going through. That we know that the Lord is with us and his promises are true for us. And we can know that we have an eternal hope. And that's what Paul is saying. Listen, the things that are not seen is heaven. We belong to a kingdom that lasts forever. We have faith in the Lord and his word is true. And we don't have to lose heart. As we go through life, as we're hard pressed, and we don't just look at Bible prophecy to go through an academic exercise. We want to have good understanding. But it is to bring comfort to us that his return and his kingdom is certain and sure. So what manner of man ought we to be or woman should I be in the day in which I'm living in? Well, we know as the scripture says, it's high time to wake out of sleep for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. 
King, the dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. And then as we finish, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. And the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets since you revealed the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And also Daniel petitioned the king and set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Nebuchadnezzar is not converted at this time. He's confounded. He's amazed, but he's not converted. He says, your God, Daniel, not my God, but your God, Daniel, is truly the God of gods. He's going to say that next week. Then in chapter 4, we'll see, after God deals with Nebuchadnezzar, his conversion. Daniel here promoted in the kingdom. And so with his three companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their Babylonian names, that they're promoted as well. Remember that as we go into the familiar story next week of Daniel chapter 3 of them being thrown in the burning fiery furnace. We're all familiar with that story, but listen, it also has implications too of what is being spoken of in the last days, so you don't want to miss it. But Father, we do come, and we just... Again, we, we look at this, we, just a really quick overview of this vision that will get more details as we continue. But we do know that there's more that is ahead for us. And that everything is, is culminating, going to culminate, that is, into your coming and your establishing your kingdom. And Lord, that you have a promise for us, a blessed hope. We don't know the day or the hour of the rapture of the church, but we do know that it's a signless event. No prophecy needs to be fulfilled for your coming. So we are to be wise. We are to be watching. We're to occupy till you come because you come at a time that, that we least expect, at an hour we do not know. So, Lord, may we be ones that are looking for the return of the Lord and even as John said, that he who has this hope purifies himself. That is, we have the blessed hope before us. And Lord, what manner of men and women should we be in holy conduct? So Lord, I thank you for these reminders. And I pray that this morning as we now come to the communion table, it's for the believer. As we hold the elements, remembering what Jesus did for us in this new covenant, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin, his body broken. But I want to pray if there's anyone that's here, listen, that Jesus came to die for you, for your sins. And you can belong to this kingdom that lasts forever. As you say, Jesus, you be my personal Lord and Savior and recognizing your need to be forgiven, to repent and turn to Jesus, to call out to him, because whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and confesses with his mouth that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. And he's telling you, anyone, if it means anyone, to anyone here or listening online or later on the radio, he's saying, come. And you can pray sincerely where you are. That Jesus, I know that your kingdom will last forever. And I come and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me. You rose again. And Lord, I thank you that I can have this certainty 
that I belong to you in this new beginning. And I thank you for saving me. And Lord, help me to know you and walk with you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. For all of us here, Lord, as we hold the communion elements now, they, we would just be in an attitude of worship. And Lord, just at awe of what's been provided for us, knowing a living hope has been provided. So Lord, if we just give this time as we come to the communion table to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The usher is going to hand out the communion elements in two tabs.